chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, I talked a little bit last week about how Jesus is better than all the things that the sacrificial and the religious and the worship system of the Jews ever had to give. It was all types and shadows and foretastes of what Jesus would come and fulfill to the letter. And he is continuing to fulfill the ministry of the Old Testament, whether it seems like it or not. He still does simple things that we might call simple that the high priest would do. He actually intercedes for us. He's praying for you and I right now. Now, I can't get my head wrapped around that because about 20 minutes of prayer, my mind starts to wander and I get tired. So I have to walk and pray or I have to be cold and pray. I have to do something that makes me a little uncomfortable so that I can stay awake because I'm more like the disciples of Jesus who fell asleep in the garden three times. But Jesus lives to intercede for you and I even to this day. And so what we find out is that Jesus being better than everything in the sacrificial system he actually ministers as a high priest in a better sanctuary than they had in the Old Testament. Now, if you've spent any time in the Old Testament reading through Genesis to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy, Genesis is pretty exciting. There's a lot of family stuff. There's a little bit of genealogy. But then you get to Exodus, and it's even more exciting. God's miraculously delivering the people. He's going through all this rigmarole to deliver a people that in many ways kind of didn't want to be delivered by him they're like you know how are you going to save us and now you're taking us out to the wilderness and what about what are we going to do about food and and they just complain the whole time and you see god's grace as he not only delivers them but doesn't kill them as they complain about him but then you see leviticus he actually sets up a sacrificial worship system so that their sins can be dealt with in a very practical way and during this time, we get the description of what we find will be the tabernacle, which is going to eventually be a temple, which is now a type of Christ. Now, how can a building be really a description of a person? You know, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have any electrical outlets, and I don't have any doorways, but in some ways we do. So what we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus ministers in a sanctuary, but it's better than the sanctuary that the Jew Jewish Christian would have experienced. They were used to walking into or sending a, a high priest into a temple to make animal sacrifice on their behalf. And once that animal sacrifice was made and the high priest came back out, their sins were dealt with. They were good. They were cleansed. They were covered. And so that's something that they could practically see, but... Now that the temple's been destroyed for you and I, now that Jesus has come to fulfill all that happened in the temple, we don't get to see it happen. We're called to walk by faith and not by our eyesight. And so that's hard, right? It, it preaches well, but it lives hard. And so he's talking to this group that's used to living by sight. And we can relate to that. Maybe we can't relate to a Jewish sacrificial system, but we can relate to living based on our five senses, not on our spiritual sense. And so in chapter 9, he begins in verse 1 by saying, Then, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, 
the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. And that's the key here. It was symbolic. This is a type. This is a foretaste. It's like a sketch before you ever watch those you ever watch Pixar movies? And then if you watch the extras on the DVD, parents, you've gotten bored with the movie, you're watching the extras, and they show the sketches or they show the real simplified versions before they put the 3D rendering and all the shininess and all the cool sound effects. They show the storyboards. Well, in many ways this tabernacle was really just a storyboard that would prepare the worshiper that there is only one way to access the Holy of Holies. There's only one door even to what they call the holy place. And we see here on the image I put for you on the screen, and I don't know how visible it is to you in the back, but they had the holy place, which was the first place you could walk into in the temple. Now, this is not where you did business with God. This is where you entered in through. And there's the candlestick, which is the wrong word, really, because they didn't have candles. They had lampstands. And in these lampstands, they had wicks. You ever had a Coleman lantern? Not the new pump ones and not the, you know, not white gas, not propane. We're talking oil. They would light the oil. Maybe you've seen one where it's the kerosene lantern. Makes wonderful smell in a cabin if you're growing up and you're trying to kill brain cells with the fumes. But, but, but that's what we used, and that's what they had in the tabernacle. So when you go into the holy place there on that image, you'd walk through the bottom, where we see the bottom, we're looking at the top, and you'd walk in there and there would be a lamp. Now, it's, it's pretty practical, actually, because you walk into this holy place, there's no windows. Absolutely no windows. You don't get light from the outside, you get darkness. But as you get into the darkness, you have this, what looks like a menorah, that actually has oil in the bottom, and that oil is lit by olive oil. Not kerosene, but olive oil. And that oil, as it lights, it lights up the whole room. Jesus is the light of the world, right? And so you're, you're in a dark world, you need a lamp, you've got Jesus. He is the light of the world. He lights up this place as we are going to the presence of God. But then you have the table of showbread. And so there was the bread of the presence that was sitting there, they would have 12 loaves of bread, but they would also have a table called the table of the bread of presence. So that table holds up 12 loaves, and they would cook, or they would bake, 12 loaves of bread that would sit there for all 12 tribes. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 
bread, those loaves of bread would sit in there when they were fresh. You ever make fresh bread? You just have that smell going through your house, and it's just, it's wonderful. And as it's sitting there, it would, the aroma would be there. It would be the bread of life there in the holy place. So Jesus is the bread of life. And then, not only that, but then you go to the incense altar that stands before the, ba- the veil. Now, the veil is that same one that was described on the day that Jesus was sacrificed, and the veil was rent, or it was torn from top to bottom. And that veil was what guarded the holiness of God from the sinfulness of man that was not prepared to be in the presence of God. And so you have this veil that separates man, sinful man, from holy God. And in front of it is an incense altar. And the incense altar is got this incense that was prescribed by God to be made a certain way. It made a certain aroma that went up before the veil. But in Psalm chapter 141, verse 2, it basically, David describes this, this incense altar and the smoke that was rising up was like the prayers of the saints before the presence of God. And so we get this picture of Jesus interceding for us. And if you look at Romans chapter 8, Verse 33 and 34, he still lives to intercede for us. So while all of these things are very practical things inside of there, and even the bread, after it sits in there and cools, the next day they would make new bread and put it in there, and then that bread that was sitting in the holy place would be eaten by the priesthood. So it was very practical, and yet it was all types and shadows of what Jesus Christ would be. He is the one that lives to intercede. He is the light of the world. He is the bread that sustains us in this life. All pictures of Jesus. And so this place, this holy place, verse 6 and 7, only certain people could go in there. You and I could not go in there as Gentiles. But even if you were an Israelite, you could not go in there unless you were from the Levitical priesthood. And unless you were the high priest, you couldn't even think about going into the next room, which is the Holy of Holies. So in the Holy of Holies, once you get past the veil, again, only one way to enter into the presence of God. That right there, picture Jesus. He says, I am the gate. No one comes in except through this one place, through Jesus. But then you get the Ark of the Covenant, and he describes what's in the Ark of the Covenant. What is it? The tablets of the law, the manna. There was manna still preserved in there. And I don't think it was moldy. I think God supernaturally preserved it. But then what was the third thing? There was the, the rod of Aaron that had budded miraculously. Not a plant from the ground, but his staff. Remember, there was a contention between Aaron and the other people that thought, hey, who are you to represent us before God? Why can't we do it? So Moses said, no problem. Why don't you guys all take your walking sticks, put them right here. We're going to leave them in the tabernacle or the place where they met God at the time. They left, and when they came back, whoever's budded would be the one that God chose to lead. So they went in there, and they found Aaron's rod had budded. So it's a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of God showing, he, this is the guy that I've chosen. It was also a picture and a reminder that they sinned by basically resenting God's chosen one to represent them. God gets to choose, not us. And so it was really a picture of their sin. 
being put in the altar. And then we have the manna. Now, the manna was no doubt the bread God miraculously provided them daily in the wilderness for 40 years. But it was also a reminder of their rebellion because he provided that bread every day. And he, they started to complain about, well, can we eat something else? Now, if there's any other food in the world, by the way, that you try to eat the same thing every day for a long period of time, you will not be healthy. Your body will not be sustained. You'll have health problems. But the manna had literally everything in it to keep them healthy, not for three months, not for 30 days, but for 40 years. There's no other food you can eat that will do that. You'll get sick. And so we have a picture there of God once again reminding them of their failure to rest in his provision. But then, what was the fourth one? The law. No big deal, right? Except even in the giving of the law. The law was given on these tablets. Moses comes down off the mountain, and as he comes down, he looks out and he sees them worshiping the golden calf. And it says they were actually there uh, playing. Now, in the Old King James, it says they were playing or something like that. But the idea is they were sexually worshiping this golden calf. They were taking the, the ideas of the world and using them. And, and all the other nations in the land that they w were brought into, they would worship their gods through sexual fornication. And so <laughs> maybe that's a highlight to you. Maybe that's something you're like, I didn't know that. But it's there in the language that that's what was going on. So when Moses comes down, he's carrying the Ten Commandments, and he gets angry and throws them down. It, it helps you to kind of get why he was so angry. It wasn't just that they were worshiping an animal. It's that they were, the way that they were worshiping, worshiping an animal. It, it, so, so in that very instance, when you have these tablets of the law, it's a reminder to those that would see them. Oh, I, remember when, I remember when Moses brought him down, and when he got mad, he threw him down. He literally broke the Ten Commandments, and he had to go back up and make his own. So all of that said, when you take this altar and you look at the fact that that Ark of the Covenant has those three things in it, it's not because they were holy. It's because they were unholy things that were reminders of their past failures. So then on top of the Ark, you have the mercy seat. And that is where the blood would be poured out from the animals to cover their sins. And I love this because in God's mercy has said, we have the mercy seat. We have the place where God is met and where our sins are dealt with. You have the two cherubim surrounding it. And you have the presence of God right over it. When he looks down on that mercy seat, when he looks down on the Ark of the Covenant, he no longer sees our sins and our trespasses, but he sees the blood applied to our lives, redeeming and saving us from our unholiness, our sinfulness, which is beautiful because when Jesus' blood is applied to our lives, God looks down on us and he doesn't see those list of requirements that sin had because of our own rebellion against God. He looks down and he sees Jesus. And he looks down and sees Jesus and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what he sees when he looks at you and I when we are trusting in the blood of the Lamb. And so, verse 9 and 10 it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, 
though their sins were forgiven, their consciences were still uncleansed. They're, they're practical. Ceremonially, they were clean, but they still remembered those things. And so verse 10 says, uh, this concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances that were imposed until the time of reformation. And so this was a temporary system. And so we see here that this was the Old Testament sanctuary he's just described. And I know I went into depth on this picture here, but that's where they were used to worshiping. So if you're a Jewish Christian, if you're someone who's used to trusting in this system, and now you don't have it anymore, now what? How do I deal with this problem? How do I deal with not being able to go into the presence of God? And so he's going to show them that all of these things were foreshadows, and they've actually been provided for in Christ. So in verse 11, he continues, But Christ came as high priest of the things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more will this cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And I underlined dead works, and I wrote in my Bible, sinful deeds. He says there, how much more can the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from sinful deeds to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, I'm recognizing, by the way, that this is all a mouthful. This is a lot to take in. But he's comparing the earthly sanctuary with the heavenly sanctuary. And so he's no longer describing dimensions and things that are sitting there. He's now describing the finished work of Jesus. And so here in this new sanctuary, this heavenly sanctuary, first of all, what's sanctuary mean? I had to look that up because if I say the word too many times, I start to go, I wonder if I even know what this means. And so I googled, define sanctuary, like I did define covenant last week. And it, what it said was a place of refuge or safety. So this sanctuary is a place of refuge or safety, which I find interesting because the Old Testament sanctuary was not safe. The holiness of God was in there. Tradition says they actually put bells on the feet of the high priest and they put a rope on him in case his in case he hadn't confessed all of his sins and he went into the presence of God and God killed him because in the presence of God God cannot do, he cannot have sin in his presence and so there was judgment on the high priest if he hadn't fully dealt with his sin that's how serious it was but this sanctuary this heavenly sanctuary we're going to find is actually a person not a place 
So in verse 11, he's already stated that it's no longer an earthly sanctuary, but it's a heavenly one. I love this because the earthly sanctuary, even before it was the great temple that Solomon built, it was a tabernacle, it was a tent. And they would actually be able to pick it up, take all the tent poles, take the stakes, take the tent, the animal skins that covered the outside, fold it up, and the Levites would take it to the next spot that God took them to. Now, if you look over the fence of this area they had surrounding the tabernacle, you would not see anything beautiful. You would actually see dried up animal skins on the outside. Now, to some of you, that's, that's decor. That's decoration. But I don't think it looked like our deer skins do. It was getting rained on. It was getting snowed on. It was you know, probably not snow, but sun beat. It was showing the weathering. And I think this is amazing because even in the animal skins on the outside of the tabernacle, we get a picture of Christ because Isaiah says that Jesus was of no form or comeliness that you should desire him. He, didn't, he wasn't good looking. He wasn't GQ. You know, he, was, he, he, did, he looked like the rest of us do. You know, and, and I love this because, on the, but on the inside is where the beauty was in Christ. Because then you see him on the Mount of Transfiguration he goes up to the top, and he just like peels back veneer, the veneer somehow. But his glory shines through, and what his disciples said of him is that the glory was so bright that it was whiter than any launderer could get laundry. Now, you moms who have tried to clean white clothing, you're like, that's what I'm shooting for. But it never happens because my stinking kid's playing in the dirt. And, and so we have this picture of Christ even in the outside of the tabernacle. So we have this heavenly sanctuary. And verse 12 through 15 says it's a better ministry. Jesus performs a better ministry inside this heavenly sanctuary. He is sacrificed instead of animals. He deals with our sins instead of the blood of animals. Um, number two, we get internal cleansing of our conscience instead of external cleansing only, according to verse 13 through 14 says there um, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who are unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the the flesh or the outer man how much more shall the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to god cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living god our consciences need cleansing how do i know that because there in 1 Timothy, Paul writes about it. I'm going to go there. Because this was one of the first places where the Lord was showing me why I was unable to really understand the spiritual things he was trying to teach me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, says, in the, sp the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed or listening to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. When you sin, when you give heed to deceiving spirits, when you, uh, <laughs> when you give heed to doctrines of demons and you, you lie and you speak in hypocrisy, what happens is that you are searing by your own actions, you're allowing your conscience to be seared. What does that mean? 
It's what happens when your children, if they're in the kitchen with you when you're cooking, put their hand on a hot iron or on a stove. What happens is they, they melt the skin and the nerves underneath it, and they can't feel anything anymore. And when we sin, we are actually melting our sensitivity to right and wrong, our consciences. And when we do that, we actually cause ourselves to be more likely to do, do it next time because we no longer blush when we sin. We just get used to it. We destroy ourselves internally. And so we have to have our consciences that have been seared. We need them to be cleansed and renewed and made new. And actually in Romans chapter 1, we get a better picture of this because as Paul writes in Romans about the wrath of God poured out on humankind, he says the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Look at this. This is what these men do. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is revealed to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So the, the person that has a, a conscience that's been seared will not be able to look at creation and even see God's creativity because he's seared himself, he's burned himself, he's, he's rejected God's creativity so many times that he starts to attribute the beauty of creation to man's ingenuity, to his ability to master his property, to his ability to manage animals or whatever, for our ability to save the ozone. Look at what we've done and recycling and all these things, and in the meantime, it's God's mercy keeping this thing spinning, keeping enough oxygen in the air. We can do what we can do, but it's all God. But then he says there, verse 21, verse 21 says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their hearts were darkened. By rejecting God, we darken our hearts. It's like we get the, the lampstand that God's given us and we one by one start blowing out each wick until we can no longer see, but we think we can. And I say that because it says there that um, because although they knew God, and I believe that inherently every baby is born, and if you tell them God exists, they never question it. Right? They don't. I, I've not had to do apologetics with my children. And many people would say, well, that's just because you've indoctrinated them. But to them, as children, it's reasonable if I say, look at that beautiful tree. How did it get there? And they go, I don't know. And I tell them, God created it. He makes every little cell. He makes the leaves fall at the right time. He makes the sap go up through, as far as I can tell, this hard lumber all the way to the top and feed the leaves. And some of them produce fruit through hardness and soil and dirt, and we can look at it all we want, but we don't know what makes a seed either an apple or an orange, other than every seed was made and produces after its kind because of what's pre-programmed in that seed. And so I don't have to explain to my children that God exists. It's actually reasonable to them. And then we grow up and get older and see things, and we think we know things, and we start to reason and, and the next thing you know, we've explained God away, and then when something goes wrong, we go, 
Why would God let this happen? So I say all that to say our consciences, our hearts are darkened. We need deliverance from those hard hearts and seared consciences. And so he says there in this passage that there are eternal blessings instead of temporary blessings given to us by the ministry in this tabernacle. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. In other words, every law that we broke is inside that Ark of the Covenant and then the blood poured over it. But now that blood only covered the transgressions. It never healed them or cleansed them. And so his ministry is not to just cover them. His ministry is actually to deal with them and have them removed through his death. So we have received the promise of the eternal inheritance. So verse 16, he goes on and says, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, I don't know what kind of uh, animal a testator is, but I don't want to meet one in the woods. But a testament is another, you don't have to, that's a pity laugh, come on, Kelly. Um, There's a testament, he's talking about a testament. Now, where do we hear this word other than we think of New Covenant, Old Covenant, New Testament, Old Testament. But the word testament is another form of the word covenant that we looked at last week. The word covenant is an agreement. But within the word covenant is also the idea of a last will and testament. Now, many of you, some of you might have a will. I wrote one before I got married, so I'm a little behind. But in that will, when is it activated? We're getting ready to read. It's only activated when someone dies. Until then, it's a worthless piece of paper. No one cares. It's literally a chicken scratch. But as soon as the person that signed it and wrote it and got it, whatever else you got to get it, paw printed, sealed, it, it becomes active. So what he says here is that where there is a testament, testament, a covenant, or a will, there must also be the necessity, by necessity, the death of the willmaker or the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the one who wrote it still lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So he's going to go on and he's going to talk about why death and blood were necessary. And even in the days that Abraham lived, they would make oaths or covenants with blood. They wouldn't cut their hands and shake and say we're blood brothers, but they would cut animals in half. And there's an example in Genesis where, out of nowhere it seems like, Abraham's making a covenant with God, and there's animals that are literally cut in half, laid apart, and then it says that Abraham fell asleep. And you go, well, why did he fall asleep? Well, in a normal covenant in that day, both parties would walk between the dead animals, and they would say, if either one of us breaks this covenant or this agreement, then the other one, or the one who breaks it, will become like these animals. It's a very real picture. But who passed through those animals in Genesis? Abraham falls asleep, and it says the Spirit of God passed between those animals. He made the promise. He said, if I break this promise, it's my blood. 
So he was guiltless. And yet what we find in the New Testament is in order to deal with Abraham and the seed of Abraham and everybody else that's ever been born, to deal with their breaking of the covenant, the law, that there is God dying on behalf of mankind for their sins, for their breaking of his law. So he says there in verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And he talks about what what he means there. Verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and he sprinkled the blood. Sorry, I skipped a couple chapters. I was like, that didn't make any sense. He sprinkled the book itself of the law and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no removal of sin. There's no remission. So all the things that were made to worship God, they had to be cleansed first. So they took the blood of these animals and they sprinkled it. Now, if you're OCD like me, you're thinking, seems like you're going to have to do some cleaning after that. That's a mess. But that's what purified the implements. But after the purification of the implements, he goes, let's move forward to a more important truth here that without the shedding of blood, there can be no removal of sins. So that was all the point of that. So therefore, he's really just talking about what happened in Exodus and 24, verse 3 through 8. What I want to point out is that all things in the sanctuary are purified by blood. People and objects are not acceptable in God's presence. They must be purified first by blood in the past and still. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 22 through 23, it actually talks about creation itself groaning because of sin. Even creation has been tainted by sin. And I would submit to you, here's something to think about, Even heaven has been tainted by sin. Why do I say that? Because Satan's been there. In the book of Job, Satan shows up at the throne room of God and starts accusing Job of all these things. So even heaven has to be sanctified by blood. Whose blood can sanctify heaven? Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. And so Jesus' blood purifies the heavenly things, and that includes us. We are citizens of heaven. We're not there yet, but we will be. And to be forgiven, to have your sin, your guilt removed, actually means to have your debt removed from the record. It's not just, hey, I forgive you. It's, I've chosen no longer to remember the list of requirements that I had against you. Moving on, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. And if you think about it, he never went into the Holy of Holies in the temple in his day. And it was on purpose. His ministry was never meant to be 
in the Holy of Holies. It was never meant to be in the holy place. His ministry was always to be in the place that he was prepared for. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with heavens, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Now, this is a time where I would take just a second and say that is why, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as most of the evangelical church is concerned, when we practice and when we take communion, we are not take, We don't believe in transubstantiation. There are, there are groups that believe that when you bless the bread and the wine, that it actually takes on and becomes the physical body and blood of Christ. Now, apart from the fact that that's creepy, and the thought of eating human being would be weird and seems against the Old Testament even, the idea is that we're taking a supper that remembers and it, it reminds us and it pushes us forward to live worthy of such a sacrifice that was real. But the idea is, is that we are not sacrificing Jesus all the time. That's why I don't like to see Jesus on the cross still because he's not there. He's, he, he's not only one is he breaking, brought down, but he was placed in the tomb and he lives. He's alive. He's not dying. Death has no control over him. And so uh, we have a living Savior, but look at every time the word appear comes up in 24 through 28. He, I'm going to read through 24 through 28 and, and just look for the word appear. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will, again, appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So, again, a, a mouthful, but he has entered heaven itself to appear in the presence of God. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's not just covering it over, he's putting it away. He's striking it from the record. No longer even something that can be drudged up later. No skeletons in your closet. We watch politics, right? And we see these commercials, and they're getting worse every year. Maybe it just seems like it. But they're always dragging the skeleton of somebody out of the closet and going, what about this? Remember when he said this? God doesn't do that. If you're trusting Jesus, that sin that you still carry around, he's forgiven you of it. It's gone. He casts it as far as the east is from the west. You can travel east your whole life and never get west. And you can travel west your whole life and never get east. Now, it doesn't work that way the other way. Go north your whole life. Eventually, you're going south. Go south your whole life. Eventually, you're going north. And then again, and then again. But he uses this word picture. He says, 
Go east as far as you want. You'll never find that list of requirements against you. Go west as far as you want. It can't be found. No skeletons in your closet. They gone. They're dissolved. They're removed forever. Forever. And guess what? That couldn't be had in the Old Testament. That couldn't be had. Because guess what was under that mercy seat? The fruit of their unbelief was still under there. That rod was still there. That manna was still there. The law was still there. A reminder. But Jesus fulfilled it all on our behalf. And so, as we close, now, as we have been forgiven, as we've been given this gracious forgiveness, where do you go for refuge and safety? Where is your sanctuary? I don't want the Sunday school answer. I don't want you to say, Jesus, I don't want you to say, I truly trust God. I want you to really stop and think when the rubber meets the road, where do you, where do you flee to? Are you fleeing to this Savior who has already gotten it all done? Or are you fleeing to something else or someone else? The reality is, is God is the only place to find refuge and strength. So turn with me to what the Old Testament psalmist got before anybody else did, Psalm 46. It was a hit in his day. Psalm 46, this was to be sung by God's people. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Emmanuel, the God of Jacob, is our refuge. He's the only place we can go. Was the psalmist writing about the tabernacle or the temple that he could go worship in? He's talking about God himself. So let me encourage you this week, today, don't just say it, believe it. And when life shakes you up, when things that you're used to trusting in stop, he's still there. And he's already paid it all. Now, all we got to do is respond in gratefulness. Anything that God's given us to do, it's really supposed to be an overflow of our gratefulness of what he's done. So as you go towards Thanksgiving, think about that. If you're running out of stuff, and you're like, I don't know that I have a whole lot to be thankful for. 
If it's just that, that's enough. Father, thank you that you are enough. Thank you that you paid it all. Thank you that you are the bread of life, that you are the light of the world, that you are praying for us right now. Thank you that it's not your will that any of us would just stay where we're at, but that we would truly experience the fullness of joy that is knowing that you've done it all and that all we have at this point is to be praising you for what you've done. Father, cleanse us. The things that we have carried around forever, help us to realize that you have already forgiven us and that we are not allowed to hold unforgiveness against ourselves. And you are God. Father, I pray for anybody here who has not yet come to you in repentance and faith. I pray that if there's anyone here that has never said, Lord, I didn't realize you'd already done all this stuff for me. I can stop sweating and trying to earn your favor. I pray that they would come to you and repent and say, Lord, I haven't trusted you. And that they would receive your forgiveness and your assurance that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. And those that have walked with you and do know you and, and are wondering why they can't have any victory, I pray that, Father, you would highlight the things that you're still trying to deal with in them that you've already paid the price and the penalty for. And I pray, Father, that there would be healing and a new heart and a new willingness to just trust that your ways are better. Help us to be still and know that you are God and that you love us. Thank you, Father, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.